As the power boats lined up, one by one, there was a palpable excitement resonating over Southampton water. This estuary just north of England's Isle of Wight was the perfect place for a boat race. The boats were hydroplanes, fast and dangerous. These boats could cut over the surface of the water at remarkably high speeds, but could spin out of control in less than a moment, take on gallons of water quickly, or even completely break apart. If thrown from their boat at high speeds, racers could be knocked instantly unconscious. This was 1925, and one competitor stood out from the rest. She was confident, her arms covered in tattoos of dragons and stars, and she was dressed like a man. Her name was Jo, and no one really knew what to make of her. She was the only woman competing in an all-male field. No women's races existed at the time, and she was ready, situated in her brand-new hydroplane named Noog. If the spectators or other competitors thought this woman to be a mere novelty, not to be taken seriously as real competition, that assumption was quickly put to rest as soon as the race began. She and Noog spun into the lead, and no one could catch them. This woman, Joe Carstairs, won the race in Southampton Water with ease that day. It was her first victory, and she was just getting started. This is part two of the series on the relentlessly interesting life of Joe Carstairs, the fastest woman on water. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. This episode is part two of a series, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, you won't get as much out of this episode. It'd be like ordering pancakes and not putting any syrup on them, or whatever it is you put on your pancakes. Also, I really thought I could tell Joe's story in two episodes. I should have known I would be wrong about that. But since I did tell everyone this would only be a two-part series, I'm not going to make you wait the usual three weeks for part three. I already have the rough draft mostly written for the final installment, so I will be releasing that episode, which will definitely be the last episode on the life of Joe Carstairs, next week. It was either do two more episodes or one super long part two, and I've received feedback before that listeners prefer 30 to 40-ish minute episodes rather than hour and a half long ones. So you can expect the final episode in your feed next Wednesday. In the last episode, we covered Joe's early life, her complicated family history, her time volunteering with the American Red Cross in World War I, some of the struggles she faced as an openly gay woman in the 20th century, her inheritance of massive wealth, and the building of her first boat, Noog. The primary source I used to research this series, though not the only one, and they'll all be available in the show notes as always, 
was the biography done on Joe by Kate Summerscale called The Queen of Whale Key, which was originally written in 1997. I got into how Summerscale found Joe's story in the last episode, and the issues I had with the outdated verbiage, especially in regards to race and also in the way I thought the author was making assumptions about Joe. Specifically that she kept putting the idea out there that Joe wanted to be a boy. Not a man, but a boy in a never-never-land kind of way. Again, Joe isn't here to tell us what she wanted, and if she were born today, maybe she would have identified differently than she did during her lifetime, but we don't know that for sure. Since Joe said she identified as a woman and as a lesbian, and she used the pronouns she and her to describe herself, that's what I've done in this series. With that, let's get into it. After her first victory, Jo made her way to Cannes, France. She drove from Paris to Cannes, a trip that would take just under nine hours today, but in 1925 took Jo 17 and a half hours. The travel fatigue from the trip was intense, especially because it rained and stormed much of the way. But Jo entered Nug into a 20-kilometer race straight away, and won. According to Summerscale, Joe entered into a series of competitions in Cannes, sometimes achieving victory, other times being plunged into the water due to the volatility of her hydroplane. Hydroplanes were fast, so when they capsized, crashing into the water, it was a jarring experience. Joe said of it, quote, If you run into a head sea, you get a jar absolutely right through you. I can't describe it. There's nothing to compare it with. It's far worse than any electric shock." Unquote. Danger aside, the speed of a hydroplane was addicting. During a race, you could feel the sensation of speed in a hydroplane unlike you could in any other vehicle of the time. It was all-encompassing, riveting, and it shook its way through you as you clung on, hoping your boat would stay afloat. By the end of a race, Joe would be covered in oil and water and be deaf to every sound as her ears acclimatized back toward the sound of holding still. She loved it. After her wins in Southampton and Cannes, Joe decided she was ready for the most preeminent motor race in Britain, the Duke of York's Trophy. During this race, Joe would be rounding buoys, where even the most minimal error could result in a crash. It was four laps, seven and a half miles long each, in the River Thames. Again, per usual, Joe was the only female competitor, so she drew some eyes. One newspaper described her as, quote, keen-eyed and close-shingled, with a costume approaching a man's flannel lounge suit. Though Joe had the fastest time in the second of four rounds, Nuke's propeller became entangled in some weeds, costing her valuable time and the victory. She placed fifth. Disappointed, but not deterred, Joe returned the following year, in 1926, to a crowd of tens of thousands. There were boats from the US, Canada, Germany, France, and Britain ready for the race, and the Duke himself would be competing this year. It was an intense race. Every competitor had issues. 
driftwood made its way onto the course, causing damage. There were weeds and waves to contend with, and at least one competitor was having ignition failure issues. By the end of the race, only two boats were left. One was called Seagrid 4, and was captained by the German competitor Herr Kruger. The other was Noog. Near the end of the race, Kruger's connecting rod broke, costing him speed and time. But just as Joe inched ahead with victory almost certain, her propeller became snagged and was dragged under the water by a rope. For a few moments, it seemed this race would have no winner. Then Joe grabbed a knife, cut her propeller free, and motored to a historic victory. This was a big deal. A woman had just won the most notable motorboning event in Britain. After this one, Joe would start being asked to sign autographs. Emboldened by her win, Joe entered other preeminent races and kept winning. She won the Royal Motor Yacht Club International Race that same year. She went on to win the Bastis Cup, the Daily Telegraph Cup, and the Lucina Cup. Her trophy collection was steadily growing, and each win brought her more notoriety. This was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, Joe loved having fans. On the other, she didn't always like the press. A reporter from the U.S. referred to her as Betty, which caused a snowball effect, with one paper after the other feminizing her name. Joe hated it when people called her Betty, and believed the papers did it out of spite. One paper claimed Joe was engaged, a rumor she had to put an end to herself by simply telling another reporter, quote, I'm far too interested in racing to worry about a husband. I thought that was a clever answer. Some newspaper reports were flattering, and others did get her name right, but some were blunter about her appearance. One wrote about Joe, quote, A puzzler, mannish. This picture you might accept as that of a male movie star, might you not? It isn't. It's an excellent likeness of Miss B. Carstairs, foremost motorboat enthusiast in Britain. Unquote. By the time Joe started racing, she'd met a woman named Ruth Baldwin. Ruth's friends described her as wild, tough, and fun. She also liked to drink, and she dabbled in drugs. She and Joe would fall in love fairly quickly, at least more in love than they ever would be with anyone else. This would be the most significant relationship of Joe's life. Although neither of them were completely monogamous, their relationship would last for the rest of Ruth's life, and the two moved in together in London. Ruth spent Joe's money freely, turned the kitchen into a bar, Joe bought them a few penguins before realizing that was a bad idea and donating them to the zoo. They threw parties. Joe learned to dance the Charleston so well that the Evening News wrote in 1925 that Joe could, quote, dance a Charleston which few people can partner. Joe had affairs with several actresses, which, according to Summerscale, included Greta Garbo, Tallulah Bankhead, and Marlene Dietrich, 
all big names in Joe's day. Ruth would also have her fair share of affairs, though both Joe and Ruth seemed to be okay with one another's promiscuity most of the time. In 1925, Ruth gave Joe a gift, one she would keep for the rest of her life, and one she would fixate on. Ruth gave her a doll. It was a typical stuffed doll, about a foot tall, with a round head, jointed arms and legs that could be turned into various poses. He had a round head, two ears, and two black beads for eyes, situated below a pair of arched eyebrows. His face was stuck in a forever smile. Joe named him Lord Todd Wadley. She loved this doll. She bought him tailored suits. He had different outfits and uniforms. He was her most prized possession, and she wouldn't take him out on any of her boat races for fear something would happen to him. She would carry this doll around for the rest of her life, even including him in self-portraits. As the years passed, her attachment to Lord Wadley increased. Her friends saw this as just another eccentric part of Joe's personality. But it's possible the psychological reason for her attachments to this doll were rooted in emotional trauma. In the last episode, we delved much deeper into the horrendous relationship Joe had with her mother, the emotional abuse and neglect she experienced, the threats of disinheritance she received due to her sexuality, and her forced marriage to a man, which ended up being annulled right after her mother's death due to the fact it was never consummated. The only siblings she had were taken from her and literally hidden away in an attic if she tried to visit. That was after her mother's second of four failed marriages. And after her mother's death, she engaged in a three-year-long legal battle because two of her former stepfathers wanted her inheritance. Everyone who Joe had grown close with had, so far, either died or had chosen to leave her, including the father she would never know who left her a week before she was born. Joe had it easy, financially, and she always would. But emotionally, her life would be a series of devastations. The difficulties she would experience because of her sexuality in an unaccepting world would only add to her trauma. It was like the more difficult the world became, the more attached she became to the doll Lord Wadley. According to an article from the Scientific American, low emotional security can intensify our relationships to our belongings. On some levels, this anthropomorphizing of things is normal, but when a person lacks a safe and secure attachment to their loved ones or loses confidence in the safety of human relationships, they can imbue inanimate possessions with a deep meaning and even human qualities in order to fill that void. They may even begin to genuinely believe that an object, like a doll, is infused with a human essence. This is something we will see in Joe's story. According again to the Scientific American, attachments like this can lead to hoarding in some cases. In Joe's case, the void left by the emotional trauma she carried, and would always carry, was probably filled in part by this doll, Lord Todd Wadley. Beside the door of Joe and Ruth's house in London, 
there was a plaque that read Marion Barbara Carstairs and Lord Todd Wadley. This gave the impression that Joe was living with a man, albeit a fictitious doll one, rather than her actual girlfriend. Sometimes people would come knocking and ask for Lord Wadley. One man even claimed he and the Lord had fought together in France during World War I. Life for Joe while she was racing and winning and dancing the Charleston with Ruth in London seemed to be okay, at least for the time being. Her successes mounting, Joe began to set her sights on the most prestigious motorboat trophy in the world. The famous Harmsworth Trophy. This was the big prize, and Joe wanted it. This competition had started in 1903. It drew an international crowd of competitors. There was a 40-foot limit on boat length and no limit on engine size. According to Summerscale, it was a playground for those interested in building and racing the most powerful and experimental crafts of the time. Building such powerboats was ridiculously expensive. That usually meant this race consisted of millionaires racing millionaires. Joe was gonna need a bigger boat. In 1927, she commissioned three new hydroplanes, all of which are believed to have cost around 50,000 pounds, according to Summerscale. That's the equivalent of well over three and a quarter million pounds each today. The Harmsworth Trophy's own website lists Joe's boats at 30,000 pounds each, which would still be over two million pounds. All three of her new boats were named Estelle, Estelle 1, Estelle 2, and Estelle 3. Joe said she named them after her mother, which is interesting because her mother's name was actually Evelyn. And Evelyn was, in Joe's own words, the only thing she had ever been afraid of. It's unclear if Joe genuinely misremembered the name of her own mother, showing us how completely she had cut ties with her family, or if she meant it as a kind of cheeky revenge. Estelle 1 was sleek and long, Estelle 2 was shorter and broader, and Estelle 3 had been such an overly ambitious design it was never completed. But 1 and 2 were state-of-the-art hydroplanes. According to Summerscale, both hydroplanes had 900-horsepower Napier Lion engines, which had already been used to power record-breaking aircrafts and automobiles. These boats were jam-packed with power and speed, and the designs were so new that no one really knew how they would drive. Not well, turns out. Joe premiered Estelle 1 in 1928, and it promptly sank. It was just too unstable. Estelle 2's design also proved to be unpredictable in the water. Joe realized that despite wasting today's equivalent of millions on the construction of these boats, she still didn't have one good enough to compete for the Harmsworth Trophy. She withdrew from the competition. Until she heard one of Gar Wood's boats had been damaged. Gar Wood was an American and the top contender to beat. He had already won the cup three times and he was planning on showing up again in 1928. 
When Joe heard Gar's boat had been damaged, she decided to re-enter the race. She knew her boat wasn't quite fit for the event, but if Gar's wasn't either, then maybe she still had a shot, even with a volatile hydroplane. Joe trained hard for this race, in and out of the water. She went to the gym, abstained from alcohol, which couldn't have been the easiest thing in the world since her girlfriend had turned their kitchen into a bar. She boxed, lifted weights, and trained every day in preparation for the Harmsworth Cup. Then she took Joe Harris, her mechanic, a group of friends, Ruth, and of course, Lord Wadley, and set out for the U.S. The 1928 race took place in Detroit, Michigan. The press was there, ready and waiting for Joe, and just as unsure about what to make of her as the British papers had been. 150,000 spectators came out to watch the race that year. As soon as the starting pistol sounded, Joe took the lead, and the papers reported that Gar Wood looked as if he were in for the greatest race of his career. Joe moved ahead a full 300 yards. Gar put everything he had into the engine of his boat, the Miss America 7, until, according to an article of that race from the Detroit Free Press, flames shot a foot out of his exhausts. Joe and Gar were neck and neck, and it was close, until the unpredictability of Estelle II decided the race. Without warning, Joe's boat leapt into the air and plunged nose-first into the water, throwing both Joe and her mechanic into the cold river. They were both pulled injured from the water, and Gar Wood won his fourth Harmsworth Trophy. Joe's mechanic, Harris, had two broken ribs, and Carstairs had cracked three of hers, though she came out of the water saying she was fine and still chewing her gum. The Detroit Free Press reported that even though she'd lost, Joe had, quote, outgeneraled Wood. But that wasn't enough for Joe. For her, anything less than a win was a total loss. Since the boats she'd had commissioned had all failed, she decided to assemble her own boatyard. She hired six builders and placed herself as the chief engineer. Everything she did was done in secret, behind walls she had constructed around the complex. Here, she constructed Estelle 4 in 1929. When Joe finally premiered what she'd been hiding in secret behind her walls, the Daily Telegraph called it the most wonderful motorboat that has ever been made. And this 35-foot-long, shiny black hydroplane of English oak was built for speed. It was swooned over in Yachting Magazine. Estelle 4 had three 935-horsepower Napier Lion engines, and in 1929, Joe finally felt ready for the Harmsworth Cup. Again taking place in Detroit, this year the crowd grew to half a million people. Joe sped her way to 64 miles an hour in the trials, which was a new British record. But during the race, Joe hit a log in the water, damaging Estelle 4 and slowing her down enough to lose again to Gar Wood, 
who was now taking home his fifth Harmsworth Cup. Joe was getting frustrated. She rebuilt the Estelle 4 over the course of the next year. She also built the Estelle 5. By this point, racing powerboats had become incredibly expensive. Joe decided to compete again for the Harmsworth in 1930, but said if she didn't win this time, she was done. It was just too expensive to keep going. In all, according to Summerscale's estimates, Joe spent around $500,000 just going after the Harmsworth Trophy. That's over $8 million today. That was a lot of money for a young millionaire starting to see a big dent in their inheritance. Joe entered into the 1930 Harmsworth race. Again, it was in Detroit. The race was always held in the country of the last winner. Since the American Garwood kept winning, the race kept occurring in Detroit. This year, the crowd grew to over a million people. According to two sources I found, that may be the largest crowd ever gathered to watch a sporting event. For scale, the largest stadium in the world, according to World Atlas, is the Rungrado Mayday Stadium in North Korea, which can hold 150,000 spectators. This race, if it really did have a million spectators, had over six and a half times that many people watching. Here, Joe flew to 94.5 miles per hour, breaking the American record for speed and landing just 4 miles per hour below the then-world record of 98.76. But both her boats broke down. Garwood won again. He would go on to win the trophy a total of 8 times, and is still the most successful racer of all time in Harmsworth history. Joe was gutted. And she had meant what she'd said. This was the last time she would try winning the Harmsworth Cup. The sport was just too expensive. And not only was she spending money on her own boats, she was also spending money on her friends who were racing. For example, she gave her friend Sir Malcolm Campbell 10,000 pounds so he could build a race car. With it, he hit 245 miles per hour breaking his own land speed record. I love it when the histories I've done on this podcast connect. If the name Sir Malcolm Campbell sounds familiar, that might be because we just talked about him in the episode called The Real Treasure Island, which was about Cocos Island, a small island way off the coast of Costa Rica in the Pacific, where centuries worth of explorers and adventurers have obsessed over finding treasure rumored to have been buried there by various pirates. In that episode, Campbell traveled to Cocos Island and searched for that treasure. He, like everyone else who has gone looking for it, came up empty-handed. Joe would also go looking for treasure on Cocos Island. She, too, would find nothing. Joe did continue to race in other events for a few months, but the thrill of the race for its own sake wasn't enough anymore. And at this point, the papers began to turn on Joe. The Roaring Twenties was giving way to the more conservative Thirties, 
and Joe's sexuality and the way she dressed were starting to garner her bad press. Before, she had been seen as interesting and eccentric. Now, she was portrayed as too masculine and almost sinister. The papers pointed out her tattoos, said women in general were overexerting themselves with sports, they didn't like that Joe smoked, the way she dressed, and homophobia was on the rise. When Joe was a little kid, she never felt safe or happy, except when she would take some crackers and go out sailing on a little dinghy by herself. Out on the water, Joe felt okay. Now she was 30, and the world was starting to feel a little less safe, a little less happy. So she went sailing, and Joe felt okay. Only this time, the dinghy was a yacht, and she could sail just about anywhere in the world she wanted to. Over a 15-month period, she sailed to Cocos Island, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, New Guinea, Bali, Java, Singapore, Cuba, and every other port that called to her. Joe's incredible wealth gave her the ability to escape, a privilege others like Joe would not get. After sailing the world, Joe went back and forth for a while between London and Ruth and New York where she was seeing another girl. Ruth didn't like that this time, and the two hit a rough patch for a bit. In 1933, Joe saw an advertisement. There was an island in the British West Indies for sale called Whale Key. In 1934, Joe decided to buy it for $40,000 which is around $872,000 today. Joe was tired of not meeting social expectations, and she admitted later that she hadn't paid taxes in the U.S. or England in the 1920s, so she was also looking for a place to go while she was busy trying to pay those back taxes. The island would be a tax haven. It would also be escape from the press, a currently rocky relationship, and the disappointment of losing the Harmsworth Cup. She told the press, quote, I want to be left alone. This was a big transition in Joe's life. She took Wadley and left England. She still kept her place in London and would go back and forth to visit Ruth. Ruth wasn't as excited at the idea of packing up everything and moving to an island that had a population of two people. But in a way, this was Joe's farewell to England, to society, and a hello to a new beginning. She would move to Whale Key and stay there for over 40 years. It's easy to see why she's remembered as the fastest woman on water. Next week, we'll find out why she's also remembered as the Queen of Whale Key. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the second episode about the fastest woman on water, and I certainly hope you'll join me for part three, which will be the completion of the series. Again, I'll have that ready for you in one week rather than the usual three. After that, I'll have to go back to the tri-weekly schedule, as I do still have a full-time day job on top of this podcast. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. 
If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycouchpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycouchpodcast.podbean.com. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.